Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Conversations podcast. I'm Dr Louise Tuckwiller, Senior CMO working in two southern regional hospitals. The aim of this podcast is to review emergency topics with a rural and regional perspective. The opinions expressed are for general education encourage everyone to check their local guidelines and those of the New South Wales Emergency Care Institute. We are fortunate enough to have joining us again today, Dr John Gardner of Faysom from Calvary Hospital in Canberra. Today we'll be discussing atrial fibrillation in the emergency department. We'll begin with a case. We have an 85-year-old woman who presents vaguely unwell for the last few days with weakness and difficulty mobilising to the bathroom. She's had one vomit and has been off her food. She has no chest pain but is mildly short of breath. There is a background of mild COPD, hypertension and diabetes. Her medications include metformin and an ACE inhibitor. Her heart rate is 150, blood pressure 115 on 85, respiratory rate 18 and oxygen saturations of 92% on room air. Her ECG shows atrial fibrillation with some mild lateral ST depression. Now we often see patients in rapid AF, particularly the elderly, Dr. Gardner, do you mind commenting on the important distinction between sort of primary versus secondary AF in these patients and its implications for management? Yeah, this is um, this is where management of AF in the emergency department can be extremely difficult. After many years of trying to develop a management pathway in our department, comes to the realization that not one protocol works for every patient, and one size does not fit all. It is vital to recognise the complex AF patient. And this is where the patient has AF, but it's an underlying condition that's causing the AF. The underlying condition may be infection, sepsis, PE, COPD, or even alcohol withdrawal. It's really important because the management of your AF depends on what's causing the AF. If it's a complex AF patient, jumping into try and treat that rhythm as opposed to treating the underlying condition can cause more problems than actually just treating the patient. Okay. And so really it's probably not so much primary versus secondary. It's more have they got an underlying condition driving. Yeah, yeah that's right. So I, I think of primary AF, AF and complex AF. And okay. complex AF, is, there's a complexity to it, um, and that complexity is that medical condition that's actually driving the AF. Okay, gotcha. Now, I often give these patients some fluids, and if their blood pressure is reasonable, I add 10 millimoles of magnesium sulfate. Do you consider this of any benefit in a patient such as this? Um, I think you'll find that some clinicians swear by magnesium and others think it's just a waste of time. Uh, Just like the management AF in general, it's really hard to get physicians to agree on how to manage AF. Mm. Um, I personally think there's no harm in giving magnesium in this situation. Okay. If you infuse it over 30 to 60 minutes, it's not going to really affect the blood pressure at all. And I think of giving magnesium as kind of optimising the patient for whatever treatment you might give next. Okay. Um, also, um, I find sometimes when I do just give magnesium, they often revert back into sinus rhythm. Whether that was the magnesium or whether they were going to revert back into sinus rhythm, I don't know. But it's just my first kind of, it's not necessarily a treatment, but again, just what you're doing, if you're giving some fluids where you're checking some bloods, just adding some magnesium doesn't really do any harm. That's great. And what would be the possible adverse effects of not addressing an underlying illness and going ahead and attempting to cardiovert a patient such as this? Yeah, so we talked about that just briefly, didn't we? So if you if not recognising the complex patient and treating the rhythm instead of treating the actual uh, complication that's causing the rhythm, 
there was a study done in 2015 of 400 patients that showed any attempt to treat the rhythm or the rate of that complex AF patient usually resulted in a six-fold increase in complications. And those complications ranged from patients having to go to ICU, patients requiring inotropes, all the way down to death. Okay. So in a complex AF patient, the management should be to treat the underlying condition. And as a consequence, the AF should improve by treating the underlying condition. Okay. So people who then give sort of a decent whack of, you know, 50 milligrams of, of metoprolol, is, is that could yeah, be unsafe so that's, in that's, this patient? Yeah, that's unsafe for those patients. Okay. Um, and I've seen several patients deteriorate quite dramatically from just doing that kind of management, from giving your standard 50 milligrams of metoprolol to, because the patient happens to have AF. And that's why I think my mantra and what we've realized over the years uh, looking at AF in our department, there will never be a protocol for AF. And there won't be a kind of simple pathway that you can just follow and it will work for every patient. Yes. Um, every patient's different in this situation. The reason for the AF is uh, numerous and we have to look at each individual patient uh, to develop and tailor their management plan individually. Okay. Now, we sometimes get the chronic AF patient who's Heart rate's, you know, over 100, but not particularly fast, and they don't seem to be particularly unwell or complex. What sort of heart rate do you find acceptable for these chronic patients? Um, and do you occasionally use a small dose of something to, to reduce the rate? Again, it's really depending on what's causing the, the rapid AF in those chronic patients. Again, I'll say one size doesn't fit all, and there's no medication that's going to work for every patient. Mm-hmm. With the complex AF patient, I tend to avoid giving rate control medications. Okay. So the number itself doesn't bother me too much. And instead, I want to treat that underlying condition. So for example, if the patient's on that condition is sepsis, the treatment for that patient is going to be antibiotics, yep. fluids, and possibly starting some inotropes. I would give magnesium to this group of patients because uh, yes. that's optimizing their electrolytes. And also if they're hypokalemic, I'd give them potassium as well. Okay. Oh, no, that sounds great. Now, our next case is of a 77-year-old male who was sitting at his computer three hours ago and had the sudden onset of palpitations, had some mild chest tightness but was otherwise asymptomatic. He'd returned from a four-hour drive visiting some friends four days ago. His heart rate's 160, blood pressure 120 on 80, respiratory rate 16, and saturation 98% on room air. He takes an ACE inhibitor for his hypertension but is otherwise well. Now, this patient has onset of AF most likely within the last 48 hours, and this seems to be the primary issue. Um, Dr. Gardner, how would you decide whether to try and electrically or chemically cardiovert just versus getting rate control medically in, in this sort of patient? Yeah, so again, very difficult to generally speak about um, patients. It's uh, Every patient is going to be treated differently. The decision to cardiovert whether it's medical or whether it's chemical, should be done in consultation with a cardiologist. And the patient should also be involved in that management decision as well. Most commonly, we do see cardioversions in patients in emergency that we want to put back into sinus rhythm. Mm. If they're young patients or if it's new onset in patients that never had atrial fibrillation before, it is, there is a place to use chemical cardioversion, medications such as flecainide, as opposed to using DC cardioversion straight away. Mm. Uh, the reasons for that may be that um, it's less resources. Um, it's uh, technically less risk to a patient because you're removing the sedation uh, requirement. Yes. 
And there's some studies show that that probably works in 50% of the time, uh, just trying some some flecknide or a drug like that prior to moving on to DC cardioversion. Okay. And um, 50% of the time not, might not be great. Uh, mm. But if you say to the patient, why don't you take this pill instead of let's put some pads on and sh- give you an electric shock, they'll probably opt to try that first. Okay. And there's a lot more resource draining, uh, a lot less resource draining. Um, in patients that are kind of chronic AF uh, or have uh, paroxysmal AF, uh, the firm study has shown that uh, rate control is actually safer than rhythm control. Um, and that was a study that looked at 4,000 patients over many years to look at their quality of life. Okay. And so generally in those patients, uh, rate control with anticoagulation is considered safer with fewer complications from rhythm control. Okay. Oh, very good. So an older patient like this who may actually have paroxysmal AF may not be our best candidate really for cardioversion. It may not be. However, if this is a patient that is just going to AF for the first time, mm. then there is a place for DC cardioversion. However, that should be done in consultation with the cardiologist, with the patient. The pros to doing the DC cardioversion, trying to get them back into sinus rhythm, is less requirement for medications for long periods of time. Yes. But the cons is having to do that uh, procedure and putting the patient at risk of doing the procedure as well. Okay. Now, if we have a patient and we've spoken to the cardiologist and the patient and, and everybody decides that synchronised cardioversion is the optimal plan, are there any specific issues uh, with patients with atrial fibrillation in, in trying to do this? So uh, trying to DC uh, cardiovert an atrial fibrillation patient? Yes, yeah. As long as, um, as, long as uh, everyone understands the risks and everyone's prepared and everyone is uh, practiced at doing TCU cardioversion, quite a straightforward procedure. Okay. It should be done in recess. It should be done with uh, two doctors, one doing the procedure and one doing the sedation. Mm-hmm. And it's done in that controlled environment. And as long as the patient consents and understands the risk, it's uh, quite a common procedure to be doing emergency. Okay, so we follow our allow normal procedural sedation guidelines and have our airway checklist and everything completed. Yes. How many joules would you commence with for someone in atrial fibrillation generally? Okay, so um, studies have shown there's no difference in success between escalating strategy or starting with the high joules. I personally only want to shot the patient once, uh, so I'll generally start with uh, 150 joules. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if I do have to do a second shock, I'll go up to 200 joules. Okay. Um, also, it's worth, um, if this is someone who's been DC cardioverted before, it's worth looking at the patient's notes to see what's been successful before. Um, so if it's said the patient required 200 joules, I'll just do 200 joules uh, for the first shot. Okay. And for atrial fibrillation, any specific pad placement apart from the, the usual anterolateral? Yeah, there's, there's uh, again, studies have shown there's no optimal pad placement uh, to improve success. Okay. Uh, any pad placement tends to work. Um, I prefer the anterolateral approach just because I find it easier to place on the patient. Um, and I can be sure when I'm looking at the patient that the pads are on correctly. Great. Whereas sometimes when you have that AP, you know you, you, you've put the posterior pad on, but you can't see it. Right, um, yes. But I just prefer to be able to see my pads. Okay. Now, do you send all patients home on anticoagulation post-cardioversion due to the risk of atrial stunning and thrombus formation or only those with a significant CHADS-BASC score? There's lots of different CHADS-BASC scores. The latest score I saw was a sexless CHADS-BASC 2 score. And that pretty much just about any patient that you're cardioverting will score at least one point on that. Okay. And just from age or risk factors. And one point means that it should be anticoagulated. Okay. I think in the age of having DOACs of uh, direct 
uh, oral anticoagulants, yes. um, which are very easier to prescribe, very easy to administer. It, there's not really any excuse for us not to be anticoagulating these patients. Okay. And we have that period after you've cardioverted someone, you have a period of maybe three to four weeks of this atrial stunning, mm. uh, where patients are just as at much risk of developing clots as when they're actually in the arrhythmia itself. Yes. Um, so I think it's vital. And what my practice is, again, I don't usually make my plans without consulting cardiology. Right. But I'll certainly, as long as cardiology are happy, I'll certainly start the anticoagulant and they'll be on anticoagulant at least until they see the cardiologists for follow-up. Okay. Oh, that's very good. Now, in the age group that presents with atrial fibrillation, I often find they've recently been travelling around, more so pre-COVID, but, mm. and I'm sometimes concerned that that AF could have been precipitated by a pulmonary embolus. Now, they automatically score 1.5 on the wells as the heart rate's over 100, and they also score at least two points on PERD for their age and the heart rate greater than 100. Now, in which patients do you tend to consider working up for a possible PE? Yeah, that's quite a difficult question. Um, I don't really have a good answer for it. I think if Mangestalt was thinking they might have a PE first, okay. um, then I'd be more concerned and more we're working it up. And I probably wouldn't have cardioverted those patients. Yes. I'd probably be thinking, is this an underlying, is this a complex AF patient that's driving that AF? The example you gave of the 77-year-old man uh, sitting at his desk was that it was quite sudden onset. He felt the palpitations. Mm. Whereas I think a PE would probably be more insidious with like more insidious shorts of breath over a number of days. Yes. And so if you have that, particularly that insidious onset, where it's a bit, a bit unclear when they became unwell, mm. uh, when they, and, and they've just been a kind of gradual deterioration, um, those are the patients I'm more concerned as an underlying problem causing the AF, mm. as opposed to just the AF itself that's made them present. Okay. Oh, no, that's very useful. Now, patients in rapid AF can also experience chest tightness and have some rate-related ST depression. When would you consider doing a troponin level in these patients? Yeah, it's tricky. Um, often troponin levels in these patients will confuse the clinical situation as it's not clear whether this has been a rate-related rise or if it's actually been due to significant ischemia. Um, the reality is that most of these patients end up getting a troponin as part of their workup initially. And if it is raised, then that leads to having to have serial proponents. Yes. And usually just make a plan in consultation with cardiology as to when, if you're going to actually admit that patient for further observation or whether you're happy that troponin is actually, the second troponin has gone down to a safe rate, that this was probably was just a related uh, event. Okay. I know that sounds very reasonable. Now, the Emergency Care Institute has a section on atrial fibrillation that covers the immediate and long-term management. And for complex patients, you know, as you mentioned, it's also important to get advice from cardiology. So, Dr. Gardner, do you have any final advice on the management of rapid atrial fibrillation in the emergency department? Uh, just to reiterate what I've said already, um, one size does not fit all. Every patient who presents to ED with AF has to be assessed as an individual. Um, it's important to ask yourself, could this patient have complex AF? Is there an underlying medical condition that's driving the AF? Um, it's important to be aware of all the management options that you can uh, institute for AF. And in, in conjunction with cardiology, you have to formulate a tailored plan to treat that individual patient every time. Oh, that's excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Garner, on a very difficult clinical situation that we have in the emergency department quite frequently. So I really appreciate that. No worries. Thank All you. right. Thanks again. Bye.